welcome to episode 36. As I hopefully do on a regular basis, I want to say thank you for clicking that little triangle that points to the right in order to give this a listen. This is the second in a run of episodes that'll get you hyped for the upcoming Oscar season by taking a look back at some previous Oscar-winning films and their co-nominees. Last time, we looked at 1976's Rocky, which got Best Picture for that year, as well as Taxi Driver, which got four nominations but walked away at the end of the ceremony totally empty-handed, which, personal opinion, was a crime. But it was 45 years ago, and I was still part of the sippy cup crowd at the time, so I can probably get over it. So the way these Oscar-themed episodes work is we're taking a look at select years in five-year increments. Last time was 1976, so in this episode, it's 1981. I did the math. Correctly, I hope. I teach English and film for a living, so talk to me about symbolism and the great Gatsby or an raisin in the sun? Great. You want to know about German expressionism or film noir? Fantastic. You need help graphing a parabola? There's the door. So, so I did the math, and if all goes according to plan, we'll be up to 2016, right before this year's big night, which is March 27th, with enough time to have an episode on whatever this year's nominees will end up being. Each week up to then, we will look at a different Best Picture winner and one of its co-nominees. As for which of the co-nominees, majority rules. You vote in the weekly poll that I put up on my socials. On Facebook, it's my Facebook film group, Silver Screeners. Go ahead and join it if you haven't already. It is public. On Twitter, my handle is FilmBuff1974. And on Instagram, FrankMendoza1974. Or you can email FrankMendoza at Yahoo.com. And the co-nominee film that gets the most votes is the one. For this episode, you made your voices heard, and it looks like On Golden Pond got the most love. There were votes for Reds and Atlantic City, and I'd already covered Raiders of the Lost Ark back in episode 8, so I did not include that one in the poll. Figured that instead I may as well shamelessly take the opportunity to ask you to go back to previous episodes and boost some download numbers. Why the hell not? But like last time, in the interest of pleasing everybody, I'll throw in a bonus fun fact, one about each of the other nominees that got votes. So that being said, like last time, we will begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of each film. After that will come the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each film. Then the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous. One, maybe two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. Then comes the tried-and-true trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And the big finish comes with a preview of next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from. And if you're under the age of 40 and saying to yourself, damn, old movies, bring it on, then all the power to you. And if you're under the age of 40 and saying to yourself, damn, old movies, no! then respect to you. But may I humbly offer up to you the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So rewind 40 years back to early 1982 as the 1981 Oscar campaigns kicked into high gear. Throw on those leg warmers, blast the MTV, raise a glass or maybe a finger to Chuck as he marries Lady Di as we begin the spoiler-free plot setups. So let's hit the ground running. See what I did there? With those early 20th century athletes. In the year 1981, when actors like Natalie Portman, Chris Evans, Elijah Wood all came into the world, a select group of films, including Chariots of Fire, saw themselves in the Oscar hopeful lists. Chariots of Fire would go on to win the coveted Best Picture Prize, directed by Hugh Hudson, based on an original screenplay by Colin Welland, and starring Ben Cross as Harold Abrahams and Ian Charlson as Eric Little. It was released nationwide in the UK on May 15th of 81, and if you lived at the time in Ireland, Portugal, Australia, Italy, Scandinavia, and Brazil, you could catch it in theaters throughout the year as well. 
It got a limited release here in the States in Los Angeles and New York in September of 81. And good thing for the filmmakers, because that's how it qualified for Academy Awards consideration. It was not released nationwide in the U.S. until the following April, April of 1982. Let me begin by telling you a true story about running. A true story, I swear to God. It was April about two or three years ago. Nice Saturday morning, and I was out running. Had my earbuds in, listening to music. I forget why I didn't have my iPod with me. For some reason, I was using my phone instead. I had my phone in my pocket, playing music for my playlist. Because it was my phone and not my iPod, I wasn't listening to one of my created playlists. It was just playing stuff at random. My wife and I have a shared playlist, so that means that each of us has access to each other's music on our own devices. If you run as well, then you probably know that a phone is not the most convenient thing to be carrying. So I started off with Jim Morrison, The Doors, their song Peace Frog. Good tempo to get the adrenaline pumping steadily without getting too crazy. Halfway through the song, my leg must have hit the phone screen in my pocket just enough to skip to the next song, 12 Days of Christmas from the Downton Abbey Christmas album. I kept running, didn't want to stop, gritted my teeth, but lost my shit by the time I got to six geese a land. Worst jog ever. So, where am I going with this? One, if you have to run with the phone, use an armband. Two, try the Scottish Chariots of Fire. You'll love it. But back to the movie. It's the true story of five young track athletes, four men in England and one in Scotland, and their determination to win the 1924 Olympics, overcoming any and all obstacles along the way, both personal and professional. It's a great concept for a really good story. As the film opens, an on-screen title lets us know that the film starts off in 1978 London. There's a funeral service underway for Harold Abrahams, one of the Englishmen. The speaker calls him a legend and says, And now there are just two of us, young Aubrey Montague and myself, who can close our eyes and remember those few young men with hope in our hearts and wings on our heels. Dissolved to a close-up of, like, 106 pairs of bare feet running through wet sand along the shores, kicking up mud all over each other as they jog along. The camera pans up and rests for a bit on Aubrey Montague. The whole thing is done in slow motion. He makes his way off screen, which allows for Andrew Lindsay to enter the frame, a particularly mud-splattered runner. He's smiling widely like the mud is gold. He wipes it off his face, offers up a wide, open-mouthed grin at whoever is next to him off screen. And then his close-up is done. The title of the film comes up in simple and basic font, nothing fancy, which, honestly, is a good way of describing the film, and I don't mean that as a knock. And at that point, into the frame runs Eric Little, who then yields the frame to a very intense-looking Harold Abrahams, played by Ben Cross, the one whose funeral we were just seeing. Then there's a long shot of the whole bunch. There's maybe 20, 25 of them. They're all dressed alike. They're all now seen in the distance through a long shot. The camera pans from left to right to follow them as they're running along the beach. And once the camera reaches all the way to the right, in the foreground is a man with a young boy and a dog. They're just randomly there. <laughs> they're watching the running, but they serve no other purpose other than presumably to fill the frame. And once the group is at a distance, the man, the boy, and the dog then simply walk away without us ever having seen their faces. It's a curious bit of blocking, but there it is. Cut to another long shot, this time of the Calton Hotel. The runners enter the frame from the bottom left, and then they leapfrog over a couple of fences as they make their way towards the entrance. And of course, throughout all of this, the iconic score by Vangelis plays. It's a blend of the visual and the audible that's been parodied everywhere from National Lampoon's Vacation to the Michael Keaton comedy Mr. Mom. And voiceover then begins. It's Aubrey Montague, played by Nicholas Farrell. He's writing a letter to his mother from the hotel in Kent on the 28th of June, 1924. 
He apologizes for letting the Olympic Games interfere with his shorthand, as he puts it. But he goes on to say, if you were my age with a shot at winning the world championship in Paris, you'd be doing the same. And it's just a week to go, he says. He also says that Harold is just as intense as ever, always ready to have a go at anybody who stands in his way. We then have a flashback to when they first arrived in Cambridge in 1919. So now it's the immediate post-World War I years, and here's where I first pieced together that following along with this movie was going to take a lot of concentration. I said before that there are two kinds of movies, those you can fold laundry by and those you can't. Take your eyes off the screen for just one minute with this puppy and you're lost. So to recap, we begin in 1978 with a funeral, flashback to 1924 for a slow-motion jog along the beach and a letter to mom, and then flashback once more to 1919. And all of this is before we're even four or five minutes in. It's like Pulp Fiction without the noise. So Aubrey and Harold meet in a train station as they're both embarking for Keyes College in Cambridge. They arrive and they're greeted by Rogers, the head porter, played by Richard Griffiths, probably most recognizable to modern audiences as Harry Potter's Uncle Vernon. Rogers and his assistant, Mr. Radcliffe, they're greeting Aubrey and Harold. Uncle Vernon says, oh, you must have been in the service for the war, but Harold says, no, I joined the military too late to see any combat. Harold goes on to take exception to their calling him Laddie, and stonily says, I ceased to be called Laddie when I took up the King's commission. Is that clear? I'd be obliged if you'd remember it. Harold walks off, and Uncle Vernon makes an anti-Semitic comment to Aubrey. So then we get a few scenes showing them settling in, attending a freshman dinner, going to some kind of an orientation, some kind of an exhibit where all of the extracurriculars are on full display. Harold's throwing himself into everything with this determination to prove himself, even formally making challenge to the college dash which means that he'll run the perimeter of the outdoor court to and from a fixed point underneath the clock, within the amount of time it takes for the clock to strike 12 noon. There's heckling from the other students that includes another anti-Semitic comment, but Harold ignores it. A couple of faculty observing through an upstairs window comment on how Harold's father is a financier in the city and how Harold has a reputation for being intelligent but arrogant and offensive, and that he's one hell of a runner. Back outside down below, Harold's about to run unchallenged, but at the last second, Andrew Lindsay, played by Nigel Havers, volunteers to run against him. And that's a challenge that Harold accepts. The clock goes off, they run the thing, and Harold just manages to beat Lindsay by a slight margin. Then we're suddenly brought to the Highlands of Scotland in 1920, where we meet a new character, Eric Little, played by Ian Charlson. Eric and his siblings were all born in China, where their parents were missionaries. There's a welcome back home to Scotland gathering, where it's established that Eric is a wicked fast runner, like Aubrey and Harold and Lindsay back in England. But Eric's sister Jenny makes it clear to him that she objects to his plan to run competitively. She's a devout Christian, who thinks that his top priority should be missionary work. He says that he wants to compare running a race to faith, that both require, as he says, concentration of will, energy of soul. He says that to a crowd that he's talking to at the University of Edinburgh, maybe a scene or two later. So the conflict between brother and sister is established, as well as the conflict within himself. Meanwhile, back in England, Harold experiences more anti-Semitism as he thinks about his father and his brother. His brother's a top-notch doctor. Harold himself, he's studying law, and he comments to Aubrey how his father forgot one thing about England that it's Christian and Anglo-Saxon, and so are her corridors of power, and those who stalk those corridors guard them with jealousy and venom. He is hell-bent on running and taking up the competition one by one. There's a montage of all of these characters racing to the tune of the Keys College Choir singing Gilbert and Sullivan. They're singing a song that I only know because Sideshow Bob sang it to Bart Simpson in the Cape Fear episode. And Harold finds a love interest eventually in a soprano opera singer named Sybil, played by Alice Kriege. So this all brings us to the 30, 35 minute mark of the film, 
I don't want to go any further with the premise, but the fact is this movie is based on a true story, which is cool. They changed a few things, as films tend to, which is sometimes cool. I mean, let's face it, you can't take however many years worth of the life experiences of four or five different people and compress them into a two-hour movie without consolidating something. Consolidating, condensing, or leaving out altogether some stuff. It's like if you're trying to shove the Boston Red Sox all together into a Mini Cooper. It's just not happening. They weave in a lot of themes of ethnic backgrounds, religious faith, both Christian and Jewish. But I don't really get the sense that they hit you over the head with any of it. It's there as part of the story, but nothing is really dwelled on for any kind of melodramatic milking. I mean, by the time we get to the fourth training montage set to the synthesized 80s music, it can get a bit redundant. But I can appreciate that Chariots of Fire is a movie that sort of pulls you in subtly with no big flamboyant gestures. No big Oscar clip scenes of hysterical breakdowns, passionate pleas, intense whisperings of significant dialogue. No taglines or catchphrases that become hashtags. So, to its credit, it doesn't scream Oscar bait or employ the use of filmmaking cliches to try to shine a spotlight on itself. And depending on your personal taste, that could either be in the film's favor or count as a strike against it. Meaning, the film invites you to observe and to witness what's happening. It doesn't drag you by the hair towards any kind of emotional response. Even the iconic Oscar-winning score plays only during the opening credits, before you even know who's who or what the hell's going on. It does play during the end credits as well, but only after the screen fades to black. The score in and of itself can accurately be described as inspirational, or maybe even big in scope, but in the context of how they actually use it in the film, it's not employed as any kind of emotional manipulator, the way it easily could have been. Again, you decide if that means the movie plays by its own filmmaking rules, or comes across as emotionally removed or detached. But I will go on record as saying this emphatically. With a title like Chariots of Fire, I will forever sing the songs and light the candles for this movie, because it does not forcibly incorporate the title into any line of awkward dialogue. That would have been way too easy, and conceivably might have happened if it were made today. If I had to pick at any nits, my one problem is that I'm just personally not the sharpest cheese on the cracker when it comes to being able to follow along with who's who when you have big ensemble casts primarily made up of unknown actors. Unknown actors are fine. I'm all for finding fresh talent, don't get me wrong. And I'm also cool with ensemble casts that have well-known names. I mean, Clue and Knives Out, two of my favorite films of all time. You know, the cast is instantly recognizable. I'm talking about unknown ensembles. I'm talking about how long it takes me to figure out who's who when you have unfamiliar faces playing the roles. I mean, true confession time, it took me about two or three seasons before I had all the kids' names straight on the TV series 8 is Enough. And Downton Abbey about ten years ago, it took me, honestly, about two or three episodes before I realized that there were three daughters, not two, and that the mother was supposed to be American, not British. But getting back to Chariots of Fire, I get it that five characters is not a hell of a lot to keep track of, but between the flashbacks and then the jumps back and forth from England to Scotland and back to England again, and not always with helpful title cards, it's a slow burn. At least for a while, it's a slow burn. But by the one-hour mark, it does begin to fall into place, and you do get the sense that the story is going somewhere good. So in the end, overall, it does take a while to get off the ground, to be honest, but in its own way, once it does, Chariots of Fire is worth a look. At least once. And if all of this Olympic running has got you worn down and exhausted, then there's good news for you. It's time to pivot towards On Golden Pond. Time for some rowing of canoes. So hop into one, join Hank Fonder and Kate Hepburn, lift a finger of your choice to a motorboat threatening to disturb some loons swimming around languidly in the Golden Pond. Directed by Mark Rydell from a screenplay by Ernest Thompson, based on his own stage play. 
As the opening credits begin over a black screen, we get this soft, melodic piano music, which is fairly typical of a late 70s, early 80s drama, like Kramer vs. Kramer, Ordinary People, films like that. On Golden Pond, the movie, and the play that it's based on, it's a family drama about the fears of growing older, mortality, and decades-long family conflict. It comes in the form of an estranged father-daughter relationship. Given that two 20th century legends, Fonda and Hepburn, they play the leading roles, and given that it was a time when, like I said, family dramas were a big Oscar draw, you can see why this one scored big on Oscar night in early 1982. The opening shot of On Golden Pond is a close-up of a loon. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm not good at identifying different kinds of birds. When I first saw the close-up, I thought, is that a seagull? Is that a duck? What exactly is that? So I took a screenshot, sent it to one of my old college roommates who was a bio major. By the way, Dave, thank you very much. Dave responded and said, oh, that's a loon. I said, much obliged. So give it up for Dave, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> so then you have an overhead aerial shot of a body of water. And we're just going to go out on a limb here and say that that body of water, it's probably Golden Pond. Though to be honest, with the way that the sunlight was glittering on the water, I was half expecting Jason Voorhees to break the surface and grab Kate Hepburn at any second. The camera pans up, and up, and up, <laughs> and you're there like, okay, this has got to end someplace. But then dry land finally appears at the top of the frame, followed by more water. It's like that ship in Spaceballs that just doesn't stop. But when it finally runs its course, cut to a close-up of a lily pad. Then an eye-level angle long shot of the whole friggin' pond, and at this point I was there like, okay, we got the point. It's a pond, it's golden, where's Catherine? More close-ups of flowers and ducks and loons and more ducks, and then finally something different. A tracking shot following a bird soaring through the air. So that shakes it up a little, kind of. At long last, after a series of all these nature shots, we see a car driving along a road, but don't get too excited. The camera pans away from the car and sweeps over the surface of the water once more for good measure to remind us that there is a pond in this movie. A close-up of the porch of a cabin tells us, okay, there are people in this story. Time to get the show on the road, and here it comes. The moment we've been waiting for. Norman and Ethel Thea, played by Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn, get out of their vehicle. We have characters, folks. She excitedly tells him in her trademark Hepburn voice. She says, Norman, Norman, the loons, the sound of the loons, they're welcoming us back. He leans forward with his mouth slightly agape and says, I don't hear a thing. They step inside. He comments on the mess. She says, oh, it'll be neat in no time at all. She goes back outside without warning. He goes over to the wall. And that's where we're introduced to his character's history. We see old newspaper clippings of him lifting weights as a strapping young lad, and by the end of the pan, we see a headline from the Daily Pennsylvanian that says Professor Thayer retires. So we now know his name is Norman Thayer, and he was a college professor. The implication is that his memory is failing him, and seeing these reminders of what he's done with his life helps to perk him up. Until he stands up straight, looks at himself in the mirror, sees how old he now is, and grimaces as he puts his fishing hat back on. He goes over to another door that leads outside, but when he pushes open the attached storm door, it falls forward and crashes on the ground. And in a theatrical touch, that becomes sort of a running gag throughout the film. He checks to see that the phone's working, he's walking around, picking things up, putting them down. He's re-familiarizing himself with the surroundings. Then he hears a knocking at the door, it's his wife, he lets her in. Good thing, because she's carrying two armloads of firewood. He doesn't even offer to take one of them, but she doesn't seem to mind. She's upbeat and she's cheerful. She prances in with the wood, she puts it all down and says, Oh, Norman, everything's just so beautiful. Everything is waking up. Little tiny birds, little tiny leaves. And just try to hear that dialogue in Catherine Hepburn's voice. She tells him that she met a nice middle-aged couple in the woods. She says, just like us. He says, not just like us. We're old. You're old. I'm old. 
But she's not giving in, and she says, oh, we're on the fire edge of middle age, and he says, no, you're old and I'm ancient. And she replies, as any of us would, oh, poo. And in addition to the falling storm door, oh, poo becomes a repeated gag throughout the whole movie as well. She says, you're in your 70s and I'm in my 60s, and his retort? Barely, on both counts. The whole scene is very theatrical. It's very obvious that the source material was written for the stage. It's all in the one room. The dialogue is all about the type of people they are and what their personalities are like. It's very expository. It's setting things up. It's not the worst thing in the world, but when it plays out in a film, it can sometimes be very... I don't know, it can come across very unnatural. But in the next scene, we're taken outside to the middle of the pond where they're in a canoe and she's got a pair of binoculars and she's all excited because in the water she spots a pair of loons. And she says to Norman, oh, look at those loons, they must be husband and wife. But then they both spot a motorboat heading towards the loons. And in the best moment of the film so far, they both flip off the boat. Seeing these two 20th century acting legends together, raising their middle fingers is, for me anyway, the payoff for sitting through a slow opening. There's a brief scene of them playing a board game. They haven't really changed their facial expressions. With her, you get 4,000 teeth, and with him, just a grumpy pout. And then they pull up to a dock in the next scene where two teenage boys help them fill the motorboat up with gas. One of those two teenage boys, by the way, is played by Chris Rydell, who's the son of Mark Rydell, the film's director. The two kids make a wisecrack to Norman about his age. He reacts angrily, saying, hey, I may be an old man, but I can still take on you punks, and raises his fists. She comes out, she diffuses the situation, they get into their boat, they go off, leaving the two young guys smirking and chuckling at each other. Back at the cabin, he's got a newspaper, and he's scouring the want ads for work, and she says to him, get real. She gives him a bucket, tells him to go pick strawberries, and he does. So she's now alone at the cabin, when the postal worker pulls up in his boat and delivers the mail. And he tells her that with their mail, there's a letter from their daughter Chelsea. She invites him in for coffee. And it's at this point when I unexpectedly was hit right between the eyes. Norman is out in the woods on his own, and he's got the bucket in his hand and he's picking strawberries, when he has a moment of confusion. He doesn't recognize where he is, and he's lost. And he has a panic attack. He looks up at the trees, and we get some point-of-view shots of the treetops towering over him. He's panting, and he's beginning to move more quickly back and forth in no particular direction. The guy's frightened, and he can't breathe. There he is alone and vulnerable. You know, you don't always need dialogue to make moments like this effective. The point-of-view shots visually give us his impression that his surroundings are just overpowering and create this claustrophobia. And like I said, I tend to be pretty cynical about a lot of family dramas from this time period because so many of them feel forced. They feel like glorified TV movies of the week that used to be on. So I think that's why I was so surprised that a moment like this that occurs so early in the film really drew me in. Anyone who's been through a panic attack, I don't care how old you are or how many people tell you to get over it, those things can be friggin' strong. If I have one that's bad enough, I can get to shake him like a pimp in a confessional. He does manage to make it back to the cabin and to his wife, and he breaks. He's affected, and he says so. And she comforts him. And maybe this is where the schmaltz does sort of creep in, but what makes these two old pros believable in these roles is that he almost immediately snaps back into his defensive, brittle self. She lovingly reassures him that he's her knight in shining armor, and don't you forget it. And he looks at her and basically rolls his eyes and says, I don't even like horses. And moment over. And it's around this point where she lets him know that Chelsea is coming for his birthday, their daughter Chelsea. Chelsea is bringing with her her new boyfriend. Norman brushes off this news and just comments on the baseball scores. He bitterly comments on how he doesn't want a group of people to come over and watch him get older. So Chelsea, played by Henry Fonda's real-life daughter, Jane, Chelsea's divorced, she's got a new boyfriend, he's a dentist, his name is Billy, 
Billy has a teenage son, also named Billy, Billy Jr., and all three of them are expected to arrive. So later on, Ethel and Norman, they're getting ready for Chelsea's arrival. Ethel says to Norman, it would be nice if, for once, we could all get along. Be nice to them. Chelsea arrives, and she runs eagerly inside. Interestingly, she greets him by his first name and awkwardly gives him a kiss. In his first words to her, well, look at you, look at this little fat girl. Understandably, she's taken aback, but she does not look particularly surprised that he would say such a thing. Ethel, the eternal peacemaker, she turns to him and says, Oh, Norman. And then she turns to Chelsea and says, You're thin as a rail. At that point, the teenage kid comes in, Billy Jr. Chelsea introduces everyone. The kid turns to Norman and says, Hey, I hear you're turning 80. Man, that's old. Norman looks at him and says, You should meet my father. And the kid says, Your father is still alive? No, but you should meet him. Mic drop and boom. And then, of course, Ethel comes over. Oh, isn't this fun? All cheerful. Then Billy Sr., Chelsea's boyfriend, comes in. He's played by Dabney Coleman. And Norman proceeds to make everybody uncomfortable by asking him how often he sees his parents. Billy Sr. says, well, they're both dead. All Norman can come up with is, oh, well, you have a good excuse. Again, the whole thing plays out like the stage production that it originally was. You have to wonder if a line like that might have gotten a laugh from the audience. I already mentioned the running gag about the broken door, the one-liner insults, and the wisecracks coming out of Norman's mouth where you can tell where there was probably audience laughter on the stage. When a movie is a direct adaptation of a stage play, especially if it's a comedy, or at least has comedic overtones, or undertones, you get a punchline in the movie, and there's a beat or two of silence, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it just comes across a little bit awkward. Unnatural. And speaking of awkward, Billy Sr., when he and Norman are alone, actually turns to Norman and says, Your daughter Chelsea and I, we hope it's okay with you if we sleep together in the same bed, in the same room. Norman looks at him and says, Well, that doesn't seem too offensive to me, as long as you're both quiet. And after that passive-aggressive comment, the claws come out. He says, I guess I'd be delighted to have you abuse my daughter under my own roof. Would you like the room where I first violated her mother? And it's like, yeah, that dialogue is a bit cringe. Or a lot. But Billy is more amused than offended, and he says, You're having a good time, aren't you? Chelsea told me all about you. I know precisely what you're up to, and I'll just take so much of it, okay? But then Billy Jr. comes running in all excited because he rode a canoe. And then he tells his father, Oh, Chelsea wants me to tell you to go on down to the pond because she and her mother are going skinny dipping and wants you to join them. A 13-year-old, all excited to tell his father that his father's girlfriend and her mother are going skinny dipping, and they're sending him to tell the father they want you to join them. Now... Billy Jr., he, he's all set to go. He's all set to join them all. But his father says, uh, no, go back in and talk to Mr. Thayer or I'll send you back to your mother. I mean, maybe Billy Sr. has a little bit of propriety in him, but this dog's in heat. But with Ethel there as well, they, they just met. <laughs> and even if they'd known each other for a long time, I, I, it, then cut to Ethel and Chelsea in the water together with Chelsea laughing. Oh, Mom, remember how when I was a kid and I caught you and Dad skinny dipping? And I took that big light and shined it right on Norman as he was standing on the diving board? And I'm sitting here and I'm watching this movie, and it was at that moment when I said, What the f*** is wrong with these characters? Then Ethel's all done with her swim. She's returning to the cabin wearing a robe with a towel wrapped around her head. And when Norman sees her, he says to her, I thought you'd be nude. She says, Oh, no, I didn't want to overwhelm my guest on his first night. A little late to Monday morning quarterback that one. She drops a bombshell on Norman that I will not reveal, and we'll stop there. Although I will say that if you're looking for a new drinking game, 
Watch this movie. The number of times I use the phrase on Golden Pond, you'll be out in seven minutes. So let's stop at the plot setups because now it's time to pivot towards the spoiler alert as we dive into the behind the scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including the endings, are going to come fast and furious. So spoiler alert now. All right, so what was up behind the scenes with those chariots? Number five. The opening credit sequence of Chariots of Fire was shot four times. The location was St. Andrew's Golf Course Beach in Scotland. It's about a mile and a half run. And the music was playing over a loudspeaker for the actors while they were filming the scene for rhythm. Number four. The film's title was inspired by the line, Bring Me My Chariot of Fire, from the William Blake poem adapted into the British hymn Jerusalem, the hymn that they play at the end of the film, as they show the same footage at the beginning of the 20 to 25 men running along the beach. The original phrase, Chariots of Fire, is apparently from the Bible, Second Book of Kings, chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 17. Number three. According to a BBC News article from 2012, Empire Magazine quotes Ben Cross, who played Abrahams in the movie, describing the beach run as hell. He said, quote, I felt like I was the only one having a hard time. Maybe we were all dying. Running through sand and water is the worst thing you can do, but what a beautiful sequence. End quote. And apparently, after several takes, the footage was deemed to be unusable. According to Empire Magazine, a scratch on a camera lens that could be seen in the rushes allowed the crew to claim insurance and fund a second fresh day of filming. Number two. There were some uncredited extras in this film who did not have to do any running. They included Kenneth Branagh, Stephen Fry, and future England cricketer Derek Pringle. Branagh and Fry, they were both in the crowd in the scene towards the beginning, when Ben Cross and Andrew Lindsay raced around the courtyard before the clock struck 12. And number one. By the time the film was conceived, the real-life Harold Abrahams was 79 years old, and he was an elder statesman of British athletics. He agreed to offer his advice to serve as a consultant for the film. Now, the entire film is sandwiched right in between the opening and closing scenes of his funeral service in early 1979. According to InsideTheGames.biz, the producer, David Putnam, said, quote, We started working with Harold, but on the third meeting... We met his coffin, end quote. Sort of a morbid way of saying that the poor guy passed away. But the same article also goes on to say that the screenwriter Colin Welland went to the memorial service for Abrahams in London. And the producer Putnam said, quote, That is why the film begins with the memorial service Colin went, and that is where he had the idea of starting the film in that way, end quote. All right, so let's pass the Olympic torch over to today's other film to find out what was going on behind the scenes of On Golden Pond. Number five. If you look on YouTube, you'll find a video of Jane Fonda and Marlo Thomas talking. Apparently, Marlo Thomas had a YouTube series called Mondays with Marlo. I don't know. But she was asking Fonda about her experience with On Golden Pond, and Fonda has this to say. Quote, it was my first time working in movies with my father. When I was way younger, like 16, 17, I did a couple of regional theaters with him. I think I learned more from Hepburn during the making of the movie. And she took me, I can't say under her wing, because she didn't like me very much. She didn't like me because I was married, because I had children. She thought actors shouldn't have children. She preferred people who had absolutely no attachments, except to her. But she had a greatness about her, and she taught me a lot. End quote. Fonda went on to say about the first time that she and Hepburn actually met face-to-face, quote, 
The movie was all ready to go, and I came to where she lived in New York, and the first thing she said to me was, I don't like you. And there were reasons why she said that. And once we got that out of the way, the next question was, are you going to do the backflip yourself? End quote. Which is a reference to the backflip that she does towards the end of the movie into the pond. Fonda also said in March of 2021, in an interview with Harper's Bazaar, quote, she was really competitive. She really thought that I was out to win more Academy Awards than she was. And when she won for On Golden Pond, I called to congratulate her and she said, you'll never catch me now. End quote. Number four. The beloved Jimmy Stewart was very interested in playing the role of Norman Thayer, but he was beaten to the punch. The play opened on Broadway in early 1979, the same year that Henry Fonda got the Kennedy Center honors. According to Ernest Thompson, the playwright and the screenwriter, the play was performed at the Kennedy Center, and an usher said to Fonda, Mr. Fonda, there's a play that just went through here that you should know about. Fonda read it and liked it, sent it along to his daughter Jane, she read it, she liked it, snatched up the movie rights, and became a producer. Now, what I'm confused about is that according to IBDB.com, Internet Broadway Database, the play opened at the New Apollo Theater, not the Kennedy Center. So I cannot explain that discrepancy. Either way, Jane Fonda thought that her father would be perfect for the role of Norman Thayer. He was ill at the time, so she knew that if she were going to do a movie with him, that there really there wasn't any time to waste. And luckily, this play, she said, I felt was the perfect vehicle. Apparently, he wasn't sure that if his daughter would want to act in the movie as well, since her role is noticeably smaller, but she was all for it. Number three, Jane Fonda has said on a number of occasions that the characters of Norman and Chelsea in the movie pretty much paralleled their real-life father-daughter relationship. There's the scene where Chelsea's on the couch sulking and reading a magazine while Norman and Ethel and the two Billies are playing patch easy. It's a tense moment between the father and Chelsea. And Jane Fonda says, quote, We were filming the close-ups, and I couldn't see his eyes because of the lighting on me, so I asked them to pop a little light on so I could see his eyes for this exchange. Then they turned the cameras around, and it was his turn for his close-up. And just before we shot, I said, Is it okay, Dad? Can you see my eyes? And he said, I don't need to see your eyes. I'm not that kind of actor. And she says, And you know, it was just the same old thing. I was the producer of the movie. I'd won two Academy Awards. I felt about this big. And part of me wanted to die, and the other part said, this is great because this is exactly what's going on here. But I was really, really hurt. And after the scene was over and we broke, Kate came over to me and she put her arms around me and she said, He has no idea that he hurt you. Spencer never knew when he hurt me. Sometimes we'd be shooting as close-up of a love scene between the two of us and he'd tell me I could go home, that he didn't need me there. End quote. And of course, Catherine Hepburn was referring to Spencer Tracy. Number two. There is minor disagreement over whether the ending of the film is contrived or appropriate. Norman collapses and he seems to be dying. Ethel's giving him his nitroglycerin, praying softly, don't take him now, you don't want him, he's an old poop. And then he opens his eyes and says, he's feeling all right now. You know, sort of a, just kidding, he's going to be okay. Does that work to the story's benefit or disadvantage? When he was asked, Ernest Thompson had this to say about when he was writing. Quote, nah. He'll die next year. He'll die over the winter. It doesn't matter. Let him get up and have the dignity to say his last words to his wife, to say goodbye to the lake, to feel that life will go on. End quote. I don't know. The jury's out on that one. He does live at the end, so is that corny, schmaltzy, too easy, too pat? But I can't help but think that if he had died, it would have been as predictable and as cliched as a Jennifer Aniston rom-com. Kind of a double-edged sword. It's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And number one... The hat that Henry Fonda wears during the opening scene was a gift that Kate Hepburn gave to him after about a week of rehearsal. According to director Mark Rydell in the DVD commentary, she spent that week telling stories about Spencer Tracy. 
which, Mac Riddell says, quote, were enchanting stories, but I felt that she should have been paying more attention to Henry in establishing their relationship, and I told her so. And on the day of shooting, she brought that hat, which was Spence's hat, and gave it to Henry and said, you deserve this. He wept and kept it forever until his death, end quote. But interestingly enough, get this, Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn, they shed a number of friends and colleagues over the decades. They had never met before turning up on set for this film. Okay, and as promised, I have a fun fact as well for two of the other Best Picture nominees of 1981. For Atlantic City, this was Susan Sarandon's first Oscar nod, as well as Burt Lancaster's final one. It was also his last great feature film role, his swan song. But as it turned out, the Best Actor award went to Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. As for Reds, directed by Warren Beatty, starring Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, and Maureen Stapleton in her Oscar-winning role. Beatty's good friend Jack Nicholson gave him a warning before the film went into production. Nicholson apparently turned to Beatty and said, Don't act and direct. They'll overlook your performance. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous. All according to Oscars.org, the official site, so you know this information is as credible as it comes. That night at the Oscars, John Voight presented the Best Actress Academy Award, and as he read off the list of the nominated actresses, when he got to Susan Sarandon, he pronounced her name Susan Sarandon. You take a look at it on YouTube, does she look visibly pissed off, or is she just nervous? And look this one up on YouTube as well. Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, they presented the Best Director Award, and in their introductory banter, Matthau said, There are directors who know everything about human behavior, and nothing about the camera. There are directors who know camera angles, camera lenses, camera sprockets, and depth of focus, but who are totally ignorant of the human condition. Jack Lemmon added, We have all of these directors with us tonight. The audience went ballistic. They cheered, they laughed, they clapped, and the Oscar ended up going to Warren Beatty for directing Reds. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, Trivia. And to reiterate, it does not matter when you send in your answer. It doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, if it's farther back or if it's the most recent one. Answer any trivia question at any time and you will get a personalized movie meme and a shout out no matter what. You got music you want to promote, a website, podcast, a book, say the word. Last time, the subject again was Rocky and Taxi Driver. And the question was about the Best Supporting Actress category that year. Jodie Foster was up for Taxi Driver, but the Oscar went to Beatrice Strait for her brief appearance in Network. And the question was, in what 1982 horror movie produced by Steven Spielberg does Beatrice Strait play a parapsychologist named Dr. Lesh? And the answer is... Poltergeist. And in another shameless plug, let me remind you, episode 6 of this podcast, I covered Poltergeist. Just another little round of self-promotion. But sending in their answers were... Mike W., he and I co-hosted a local cable program called Real Life, that's R-E-E-L, a movie review show. Hey, how you doing, Mike? It's been a long time. Also saying Poltergeist is Chris, host of the podcast The Movie Psycho. He's a new listener, and I'm a new one of his as well. We've listened to each other's shows, we've been in touch, and we've tossed out there the idea of hopefully collaborating sometime soon. So stay tuned. You can check out his show on Good Pods, Spotify, Apple. Again, it's called The Movie Psycho, and it's a great listen. So thank you to both of you, Mike and Chris, for playing along. Movie-themed memes coming your way. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia, as I always say, there is no such thing as too late. 
No, I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names if it makes anyone feel uncomfortable. That's why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. And here is this week's trivia question. Katherine Hepburn got her fourth and final Oscar for On Golden Pond. Her first win was for Morning Glory back in the 30s at the beginning of her career. Her third was for 1968's The Lion in Winter. Her second was for what 1967 movie where she and Spencer Tracy play a married couple who find out that their daughter is going to marry Sidney Poitier. Name this movie. Poitier, of course, passed away earlier this month, so this is a little bit of a tip of the hat to him as well. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments, thoughts of your own, that you want to share on Chariots of Fire, on Golden Pond, or Atlantic City, Reds, Raiders of the Lost Stack, anything about the 1981 Oscars, hit me up on my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, which is public. Please join. Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email frankmendoza at yahoo.com. As for a preview of what's to come in the next episode, we're moving five years forward again into 1986, the year that the Academy bestowed the Best Picture Oscar to the Vietnam War drama Platoon, directed by Oliver Stone. And to tell me which of the other nominated films that year you want to hear about, vote to have your say which one you go for. The other four Best Picture nominees were Children of a Lesser God with William Hurt and Molly Matlin, The Mission with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, A Room with a View with Maggie Smith, Judy Dench, and Helena Bonham Carter, and Hannah and Her Sisters with Diane Weist and Michael Caine in their Oscar-winning roles, as well as Mia Farrow, Barbara Hershey, and Carrie Fisher. Keep your eyes open to my socials for the poll and take it from there. And that wraps up episode 36. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I would be very grateful if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to increase the show's visibility, and it's also personally very encouraging for me, so I'm putting myself out there. <laughs> if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, I'm always happy to get honest feedback and open to any suggestions for future episodes. I'm Frank, and until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the sounds of my jogging experience on that April morning when Jim Morrison suddenly became Christmas time at Downton Abbey.